Good morning. You can go ahead and open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5 is where we will spend the majority of our time this morning. Matthew chapter 5. We'll begin just by reading the text that we'll cover. And so Matthew chapter 5, if you'll Look in verse 43. We're just going to cover the very last end of this section. Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 43. I'll read through verse 48. And it says, You've heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Let's open in prayer. Heavenly Father, I ask that you would use your word today to strengthen, to encourage, to convict, to challenge, um, to exhort all of us here. Lord, we thank you for the gift of your word. We thank you that you have given it to us that we might know you better. Lord, help us then to take that knowledge and apply it to our own lives that we might glorify you today and with all the days that you give us to follow. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, Israel was commanded in the Old Testament to celebrate a number of feasts. Each had its own specific purpose and, and meaning. You think of the Passover, where they would remember that God uh, had delivered them from the land of Exodus, or the land of Egypt, excuse me, in the Exodus. And on the last night, he had passed over the houses where they had painted blood on the doorposts from the Lamb. Now, following the Passover, when they reached the, the promised land, they were supposed to remember on the, the, the Sunday following that Sabbath, the Feast of first fruits. And what they were to do was to gather in the beginning of the barley harvest, and they were to give it to the priest, and the priest was to wave it before the altar of the Lord. So that way, the, the whole harvest would be accepted by God. And it was a way of saying there's more yet to come. And then at the end of the Feast of First Fruits, you count out 50 days from that Passover, was Shavuot, or the Feast of Weeks. And this was the end of the barley harvest. It finishes what the First Fruits originally began. And also, traditionally, Israel celebrated this as a remembrance of the giving of the law on Mount Sinai because of the way that they timed it out, because it was 50 days to follow they would remember not only that God had blessed them with this barley harvest, but also the giving of the law at Mount Sinai. Now, the law, we mostly think of the Ten Commandments or the Ten Words, but it really is 613 commands that are sprinkled throughout Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers. These were given to the people of Israel through Moses in order for them to be a representation of Yahweh himself, God to the nations. And then he gave it again in Deuteronomy as a second giving of the law, following their 40 years of wandering, uh, marking the end of the, their time of judgment 
due to their disobedience of refusing to trust God and go into the promised land to begin with. Again, this is a revelation of God's character. We can see this as an example if we just take the Ten Commandments. It's not just that God flipped a coin and decided that murder was wrong. It was that God champions life. He's the author and creator of it. And so people who stand against murder are people who champion life the way that God does. The same thing about bearing false witness against your neighbor. It's not that God just randomly decided, "Eh, I think that it'll be wrong to bear false witness. It's that God is truth. And so if you are a person who's supposed to be representing this God to the nations, then you should stand for truth the way that he does and so on and so forth. You could go through all 613 of the laws to see that. Now, our text today is taken from Matthew. Matthew was written predominantly to a Jewish audience, and it was to show that Jesus is the rightful Davidic king. If you turn to Matthew chapter 1, the very opening verse says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. The book of Matthew is predominantly written to demonstrate that Jesus is the rightful Davidic king. However, there's another picture that's more pertinent to our text today from Matthew chapter 5, and that's to show that Jesus is also a prophet like Moses. You can see that also in the genealogy because there's a primary marker of the deportation to Babylon. You can see it in verses 11 and 12 where it's marking out uh, Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, it continues on. But in verse 17, you see that the two major markers are David and the deportation. So it says in verse 17 of chapter 1, So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. The deportation to Babylon, or the Babylonian exile, was a result of Israel's failure to keep the Mosaic law. They failed to uphold their half of the covenant, and so God, in judgment, sent them into exile. We see more connections to Moses in chapter 2. You may remember that Jesus uh, was taken by his parents to the land of Egypt, and Herod sought to kill all of the baby boys and killed everyone two years and younger in all of that land. And that reminds you of Moses' birth, because uh, Pharaoh in Egypt at the time of Moses' birth was filled with Israelites, and so to curb the population growth, Pharaoh had it ordered that all the boys would be thrown into the Nile. Not only that, but of course he's called out of Egypt. And then we see another connection that he goes and proclaims the word through chapters three and or chapter four, taking over for uh, John the Baptist, proclaiming the good news. And then at the beginning of chapter five, it says, chapter five, verse one, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And this reminds us of when Moses went on the mountain, Mount Sinai, to receive the law and then give it to the people and the nation of Israel. Now, a little bit of context before we jump all the way out to 43, uh, verse 43. Matthew 5 through 7 is commonly referred to as the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, There's an introductory portion of it. Churches have often loved and delighted in the Beatitudes that you see in verses 2 through 11, or rather 3 through 12. And then churches sometimes make banners about the next verses of being salt of the earth in verse 13 or light of the world in verse 14. But commentators have often wrestled with this text, which begins in verses 17 and runs all the way through the end of chapter 5, um, 17 through 48. 
this statement that Jesus makes that he has come to fulfill, not to abolish the law. Well, this morning we're going to take a look at the heart of Jesus' sermon here in these verses, 17 through 48, focusing on the tail end of it, 43 through 48, in order to understand what is Jesus' meaning and how do we draw from it application for us today. Well, like I said, even in this smaller section within the larger sermon, it breaks down between 17 to 48. 17 through 20 acts more as an introduction, and chapter 40, or verse 48 is really the concluding sentence of this section. So if you wanted to, we could just summarize the whole thing by reading verse 20, the last of the introduction, and the concluding sentence, verse 48, together. And it would read this way. For I tell you, Matthew chapter 5, verse 20, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Verse 48, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Now you're no doubt familiar with the pattern that you see over and over again in this section. Verse 21, 27, 31, 33, 38, and 43, where over and over Jesus says, you have heard it said, but I say to you. And when you read those, immediately we begin asking, is this something new? Is this different? What is happening in this text? And you know that it's not totally new because even a quick reading, you can see in verses 21 and 27 that they've been quoting specifically the law, um, the Ten Commandments, right? You have heard it said, verse 21, to those of old, you shall not murder. Or in verse 27, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. These are taken straight out of those Ten Commandments. So he's not giving us something that's entirely new. What he's actually doing is he's correcting, he's contradicting, and he's correcting. See, he's contradicting the Pharisees who viewed the law as a means to the eternal. And he's correcting the people who viewed the law as a measure of merely the external. Again, he's contradicting the Pharisees who viewed the law as a means to the eternal, a means of gaining salvation. And he's correcting the people who viewed the law simply as a measure of only your external actions. And we'll see this as we read specifically these verses again, verses 43 through 48. So let's read them together one more time, and then we'll start to take it apart. Verse 43, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. If you want to enter the kingdom of heaven, you must be perfect. Your righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. Jesus is very clear. And it's easy to see that and feel overwhelmed, to feel like you don't measure up. And that's a natural reaction. I can give you a couple of stories that might be helpful analogies to this. I remember watching a pickup basketball game a number of years ago. There was a, a young man who was about my height who seemed to be in better shape than I am. And he was doing pretty well for himself. He was on defense. He stole the ball took a breakaway down to the other end of the court. He went for a layup, and he met somebody who was a foot and a half taller than him, and he was easily deflected. All that worked for nothing. And I thought, yeah, that sounds about right. I 
That's why I don't play basketball. I uh, did a quick check of the Denver Nuggets, who are headed to the finals, NBA finals this year, just to see who the shortest guy was on the team. They got one guy who's six foot. Everybody else, over six feet. So if I were to try and play in the NBA, you would know that there's just no chance. But I will tell you this morning that there is more chance for me to play in the NBA than it is for all of us to get into heaven on our own. You let that sink in a little bit. If you think about how preposterous it would be to think of me playing in the NBA with people, you know, a foot and a half taller than me, and yet I have a better chance of doing that than we do of getting into heaven because the standard always has been and always will be perfection. The standard has always been God's perfect, holy, moral character. So let's study this together and see what Jesus is explaining to us as perfection. Verse 43 says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Love your neighbor. Jesus' teaching is not foreign to the law. Actually, if you looked up Leviticus 19, 18, it talks about loving your neighbor as yourself. It's already there. And you may think of the Shema, Deuteronomy 6, where he says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. So loving the Lord is not foreign to the law. Loving your neighbor is not foreign to the law. But if you try to find hate your enemy, you're going to have a hard time finding it in the Bible because it isn't there. Well, why did they think that you could hate your neighbor? I think there's two possibilities. One is they had a wrong definition of neighbor. You may be familiar with the story of the Good Samaritan, where a young man, a scribe, comes to Jesus and says, well, who is my neighbor? And so he tells the story about the Good Samaritan who goes out of his way to help somebody who had been robbed and beaten and left for dead. And at the end, Jesus asks him who proved to be a neighbor to this man. And the scribe had to admit the one who showed him mercy. See, they thought it was only the people who were like them, but it's actually anyone and everyone you come into contact with. Another possibility is a wrong understanding of judgment. You may think of Israel going into the promised land. They were told to carry out judgment on the wicked nations who lived there. But the problem is the same was true with the deportation to Babylon where God brought in other nations to punish Israel because of their disobedience. See, it's not their own righteousness, but rather the delegated authority of the righteous one. And so neither is acceptable. You have to understand that they had misdefined what neighbor means. And even then, if you look in the law, kindness to your enemy is still taught. If you read Exodus Exodus chapter 23, verses 4 and 5, it talks about if you come upon your neighbor's donkey or your enemy's donkey and you see it caught on the side of the road, that you should help it and restore it to him. Or if his animal is caught and he's trying to wrestle it out and get it out, you don't pass him by, you stop and you help even your enemy. And this isn't talking about a foreign enemy. This is talking about your neighbor who doesn't like you uh, for whatever reason, right? But even in the law, it taught that you are supposed to love your neighbor and love your enemy. So what is it that you're actually supposed to do? Well, verse 44 says, But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now, this is where well-meaning Christians go wrong. 
The Old and New Testament Jews may have the wrong definition of neighbor, but many times we today have the wrong definition of love. You see, in the name of love, we often ignore sin or even passively accept abuse. But neither of those things are loving. Love instead is a strong desire that causes you to actively pursue the best for another to the glory of God. I'll read that again. Love is a strong desire that causes you to actively pursue the best for another to the glory of God. Sometimes this looks like gentle encouragement. Sometimes it looks like rebuke. But it's always for the good of the other unto the glory of God. Now some may be tempted to swing too far in the other direction and say, well, love isn't a feeling at all. It's merely an action. And that's just not true. I'll share a story with you from my first year of marriage that I think many of you can relate to that will illustrate this fact. When I was first married, I was going to school full-time and working full-time, which meant that I worked a lot of night shifts, I worked a lot of swing shifts, and on one particular occasion, I had finished a long day of school, I had finished a long day of work following it, and I was on my way home when I received a call from my bride, Casey, who said, on your way home, will you stop by the gas station and pick me up a candy bar and a soda. Just a nice little treat. I said, I would be happy to. So I stopped off. I picked these things up. I brought them home. I gave them to my new bride, and she cried. I did not understand what was happening. I asked, is this not the soda and the candy bar you had asked for? She said, yes, it is. And she cried some more. I said, I don't, I don't understand. She said, well, it's because you only got them for me because I asked. I admitted, yes, that is true. You asked, I got it. If you had not asked, I would have come home and I would have gone to bed. Well, now, many years later, I completely understand, I sort of understand, that what is happening there is she wanted it to not just be a duty, but also a desire. Love is that way. It is a duty. There is an obligation to act, but it is also fueled by a desire. And so when you read these words of Jesus, that you are to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, you start to feel the tension of how impossible this command really is. Matthew chapter 15 will even talk about how the nation of Israel loved God with their words and their actions, but their heart was far from him. They went through the actions of keeping certain festivals, but really they weren't actually loving God because when you peeled back the surface layer, you saw that they were content to live in the sin that they loved so much. Well, part of being perfect then in order to enter the kingdom is to have a strong desire that causes you to actively pursue the good of another to the glory of God, whether that another is God himself, your neighbor, or your enemy. And we see the standard of the law is impossible, but for the sake of argument, let's go ahead and keep reading and see what examples Jesus gives us of how to love our enemies. Well, the second half of verse 44 says, pray for those who persecute you. This may see, seem strange to you if you're accustomed to shallow prayers, like, Lord, please give me good health and lots of money. Praying for your enemies, God, please give them good health and lots of money, would be a strange thing. But if your prayer is more like Jesus will teach in Matthew 6, 
Our Father in heaven, holy is your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Then it makes at least a little bit more sense, though it doesn't make it any easier to pray for the good of your enemies and those who are persecuting you. Even if we could love our enemies in and of our own volition, why would we? Well, Jesus says in verse 45, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, like Father, like Son. The Jews, especially the religious leaders, presumed to be sons of God merely because of their heritage. But John the Baptist, in Matthew chapter 3, warns them that God is able to raise up from the stones sons of Abraham. They should not say, just because they are descended of Abraham, that they are automatically children of God. And Jesus will teach later in Matthew chapter 12, when they say, your brother and sisters and mother are outside, he responds with, who are my mother and brother and sisters? Behold, it is these who do the will of my Father who is in heaven. You cannot be born into the kingdom. Instead, you must be born again. Well, he says that you have to be like, in order to be like God, you have to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Well, how does God treat his enemies. The second half of verse 45 tells us, so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven, for he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. This is what theologians call common grace. It's the grace of God that extends to everyone regardless of whether or not they are a Christian. It's not passive. You can see it in the text. He causes the sun to rise, and he sends the rain. It's not deserved. He sends it to the evil and the unjust. Now, those of you may say that he doesn't have a choice. You have to make the sun rise on everyone. You have to make the rain fall all over the world. But if you say that, you haven't remembered the Exodus. The plagues of flies, livestock, boils, hail, darkness, and even the death of the firstborn fell only on the Egyptians, not on the people of Israel. So God has more than the ability to cause these things to only happen to those who love him. And yet he sends it on everyone, the evil and the unjust. Skipping ahead, even more amazing than sending the sun and the rain, is that we at, all, we at one time were all enemies of God. We know that at the end of Matthew, Jesus will die for his enemies, and as he does, he will pray for those who are persecuting him. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And later, Paul will write in Romans chapter 5, beginning in verse 6, for while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. We all were enemies of God at one time, 
Jesus is not asking us to do something that he is not himself willing to do or has done. He commands his audience to love their enemies and even to pray for those who persecute them in order to enter the kingdom of heaven because that's the standard God has not only written, but he has kept over and over again. And now Jesus will drive his point home by using a human standard in verses 46 and following. He says, For if you love, Matthew 5, 46, For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? If you love those who love you, you're just like the tax collectors. If you greet only those who greet you, you're like the Gentiles. They're parallel statements, the same message, but just added for emphasis. It's simple. Jews despised tax collectors. They were often members of the Jewish faith, and they had chosen to work as tax collectors. They would take money and give it to Rome. They were allowed to take however much they wanted over the top, as long as Rome got theirs. And so they were despised by the Jewish people both for betraying them and for being dishonest. They were often wealthy, but that money they had taken by fleecing their own people. We'll find out in Matthew chapter 9 that Matthew actually was a tax collector when Jesus called him. We don't have to spend any time really talking about the Jews' opinions of the Gentiles, but even the Jews would have to admit that even tax collectors and Gentiles could love those who loved them and could greet those who greeted them So how could these Jews, Jesus was asking, who thought they were so much better than everyone else, be any better than anyone else if all they ever did was what everyone else already did? Well, in summary, verse 48, Jesus says, You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Remember the Pharisees saw the law as a means to the eternal You might remember the rich young ruler who will ask Jesus, what must I do in order to enter the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus will respond, well, you must keep essentially the Ten Commandments. And he will say, all these I have done since my youth. And Jesus' response then is, well, then go sell everything you have. And the rich young ruler went away sad. It wasn't because you have to sell all the things that you have in order to be a follower of Jesus and get into the kingdom. It was that Jesus understood that it was not a means for entering into heaven. It's a perfect standard that no one can keep. Well, the Jews saw the law as a measure of merely the external, but Jesus shows here that the desires matter too. You can't just carry out a duty, even if you somehow could, because the desire matters as well. You have to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you not to mention all the things that came before. And it's not just desires, but if you read on through the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 6 will start to peel back motives. Chapter 6, verse 1 says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. He'll cover topics like giving to the needy, praying, and fasting. For if you do these things merely to have other people see you and praise you for them, then you lose your reward that's in heaven. It's the actions, it's the desires, it's the motives, and the standard always has been and always will be God's holy 
perfection. Well, the benefit for us is that we have the full picture because, as I mentioned in the introduction, we know about the Passover where Jesus gave his life as the perfect Passover lamb so that God's just wrath could pass over anyone who is covered by the blood of his son. We know that the Feast of First Fruits, which happened on that first Sunday following the crucifixion of Jesus, that Jesus was raised as the first one back from the dead as an acceptable offering to the Father. That he presented himself before God, Paul will say, as a kind of first fruits, meaning that his sacrifice is acceptable and there's more to follow. And then if you trace it out another 50 days to Shavuot, or the Feast of Weeks, the Greek translation you may be more familiar with is Pentecost. And at Pentecost, when you celebrate the end of the barley harvest, is exactly when God in his sovereign plan from before the foundations of the world determined that he would send his Holy Spirit to live inside of believers. If you think about the first Pentecost from Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit was given to the followers of Jesus, that they received that divine enabling whereby they are changed from the inside out such that they are caused to love God, to love their enemies, to have these desires born out of a new heart created by the Spirit inside of them such that they can live in a way that honors and pleases God. Now, if you've done the math, you may notice that today is May 28th which is 50 days after Passover, which is Pentecost. And that's why I thought today would be a great day to talk to you about the birth of the church and where you are now, provided that you have repented of your sins and believed in Christ as the perfect sacrifice for you. Today is Shavuot, or the Feast of Weeks. And we remember that God kept his promise to offer a sacrifice on our behalf, But not just that, but to give us his Holy Spirit, the helper who comes alongside us and produces in us those desires. Because I think a lot of times, as believers, when we read the law, we see a list, not love. And when we think about the Christian life, we know that we're created for good works so that others may see them and glorify our Father in heaven, but it feels like a burden. And when we know that we're supposed to produce good fruit, we feel defeated. How can we do these things? And one of the main issues is that for some, you aren't truly believers. You don't have the Holy Spirit producing those good desires inside of you. And so you have to go back to the beginning. You have to believe in Christ. You have to repent of your sin, confess, say the same thing about your sin as Jesus does. And then he will take them from you and give you his Holy Spirit to produce those new desires inside of you. But chances are, on a Sunday morning in a church like Living Word, there's, most of you are, are believers, if not all. <clears throat> and we still feel that tension, that burden, the obligation to carry out this life that rightly puts on the display the glory of God that we know we fall short of. And we feel this tension, and it's because we jump straight from dead in sin to another list. We grab things like this and we say, okay, well... I guess I have to love my enemies and I'll start a prayer list where I pray for them every day. 
And what you've done is you've tried to add on to yourself legalism, which is where you are trying to earn your own righteousness, your own right standing before God, not based on what he's done for you, but rather what you feel like you could do for him. And so the one action that you can do today and tomorrow and for all the days that the Lord gives you is step back one one step and ask God by his spirit who lives inside of you to create those good desires every day. Every day you can ask God, please give me by your spirit through your word good godly desires so that I can live in a way that honors and pleases you today, not because of my own righteousness, but out of a life of gratitude for what you have done on my behalf. So let me, as we close, pray for you that God would do that for us today. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for all that you have done. We are in awe of your sovereign hand, that you have created a world and determined before the world began that you would order out feasts such that the nation of Israel over and over and over again, year after year after year, would remember the things that you had done for them, that you had provided a way out of Egypt, that you had given them the barley harvest, that you had given them the law, that you had shown them who you are, revealed your nature to them, told them your name, and made them a people that they might be set apart to put your glory on display. Father, you knew that in our own power we would fail. And so you sent your son to be the perfect Passover lamb. That you rose him from the dead, demonstrating that you have accepted his sacrifice on our behalf. So that all who place their faith, their trust in him, turning from their sin and believing that it is rebellious act against you that needs to be forgiven can find forgiveness because of his sacrifice. Lord, and then you didn't leave us there. You sent us your helper, the spirit who lives inside of each of us, radically changing us, molding and shaping our desires, giving us understanding when we study your word, drawing us into deeper fellowship with you and with others divinely enabling us to do spectacularly ordinary things like loving our family, serving our friends, but also doing things that we would never desire to do of our own accord, loving our enemies, praying for those who persecute us. Lord, give us today good desires that we might bring you glory in all that we say and all that we do. In Jesus' name.